and unsurpassed, penetrating and perfect dharma is early met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. It's our great pleasure and privilege today to have Tova Green with us. Tova Green resides and practices at San Francisco Zen Center. She is a student of Adrian Linda Coates Cuts and received Dharma transmission in 2015. She began her Zen practice at Berkeley Zen Center in 1990 after meeting Alan Sanaki and Sue Moon at a Buddhist Peace Fellowship Conference. Tova has lived at all three San Francisco Zen Center temples and has been a resident since 1999. She co-founded City Center's Queer Dharma Group and has been involved in San Francisco Zen Center's racial justice work for over 20 years. Tova is a licensed clinical social worker and while living at City Center worked for Zen Hospice Project and Hospice by the Bay. She reads and writes poetry and place the cello. <laughs> Thank you, Penelope, for inviting me to be part of this one day women's sitting and um, for all the organizing work you've done. And I also want to thank the other members of the Sangha who have supported Penelope in making this day possible. Also thank Mary, who's my Chico for today. Oh, there's the sound. I hope you could could hear what I said earlier. And Karen, the Dawn, and Hannah, who is the greeter. And if there's anyone I left out, please forgive me. Uh, but I know it takes many people to organize an event like this, and I'm so happy to be here and to be uh, with all of you. Um, including those who are participating from your homes, um, your one sangha. And um, so I uh, recently, it was Friday night at City Center, we had a, a Sajiki ceremony. Sajiki is uh, in case any of you are not familiar with it, it's a ceremony that's um, an invitation to the hungry ghosts, to those beings, including parts of ourselves who are undernourished, unsupported, or feel unsupported, and um, the ceremony is often done in Japan in August. It's an Obon ceremony. But we've, um, at least as long as I've been at Sun Center, we've celebrated it 
very close to Halloween. And at city center, people dress up in costumes and the whole building is decorated with scrolls depicting hungry ghosts and um, some of the other um, uh, things that we hang like spiders and um, that you see all around for Halloween at this time of year. And it, it's kind of liminal time of year. The leaves are falling and um, you know, it's so close also to the Day of the Dead, Dia de los Muertos. So it's uh, a time of year when many people feel the change and um, change in season, change uh, days are getting shorter, nights longer. And one thing that struck me in the chanting this year, uh, we chant the Gate of Sweet Dew and the Khan Ramon, and there's a, a dedication at the end that the chant leader, the Kokyo, offers. May the living be blessed with longevity without misery. May the living be blessed with longevity without misery. And as a person who's older, I'll be 82 very soon, um, I think about that, you know, uh, what, because as we grow older, and I, I think we're all growing older no matter what age you are, um, there's, a, for me, a, you know, both an increasing sense of the preciousness of life, but also an awareness of loss. And uh, how can, you know, um, how can we, can we meet change and loss, loss of, sometimes loss of abilities, loss of loved ones? Um, how can we see that, ask, you know, embrace that part of aging and um, learn from it? And, um, you know, I think when I hear the phrase longevity without misery, misery seems to me, it can have to do with a state of mind, um, as well as with the conditions under which we're living. And I know I feel I'm very fortunate to be living in a, a safe place, to have housing, to have food, uh, to be living in a community of people who practice and all were all ages, which is something I appreciate about living at San Francisco Zen Center. But, you know, um, this is a very challenging time for all of us, everyone on the planet, I think, with the climate crisis, with so much, so many wars, with hunger, refugees, and in our country, very unstable political situation. And I imagine some people who might have been here today are um, doing voter registration work. You know, it's really important. So um, what does this mean to be blessed with longevity? And what stories can help us, I think about what we can learn from our women ancestors as well as what we can learn from contemporary women teachers 
and what we can learn from each other. You know, we all have our stories and um, strengths that help us get through these difficult times. So in my talk today, I'm going to draw on some stories from The Hidden Lamp, um, which perhaps many of you are familiar with this book. It was edited by Susan Moon, who's part of this Sangha, and was one of the people who drew me to Zen practice, and Florence Kaplow. I'll just hold it up for those of you who are uh, participating from home. And I find these stories, and each there are a hundred stories about uh, women, starting from the time of the Buddha to some contemporary women. And after each story is a commentary by a contemporary woman teacher. So it's a very rich resource. And I just want to quote something that Florence Kaplow said about this book. When unheard voices are heard, we all benefit. And uh, Sumun and Florence Kaplow had to do a lot of searching to find these hundred stories. I think once they found these, they began realizing there were many more. Um, but most of them uh, are stories we, we might not know about. And she also said, the Dharma is a living thing, and we are making it. It's up to us. Each generation turns the Dharma. So the stories that we may have, have and we bring from our own practice and experience are part of the Dharma that will be available for the next generations. And I think as an older uh, person, an older woman, I'm very aware of the importance of um, supporting the next generations of women and practitioners to become leaders and teachers so that Dharma keeps flowing, you know, hopefully long after I'm no longer here. So the first story, I'll just say to give you a little bit of an overview, I'm going to share a story first of a woman, a Chinese woman ancestor, and then uh, two contemporary women, uh, one of whom many of you may have known, Maylee Scott, uh, who practiced here, and the other, Darlene Cohen, who practiced at uh, San Francisco Zen Center. And then I'll come back to Mahapajapati, um, our first woman ancestor. So this, the first story from The Hidden Lamp that I'll refer to is called The Old Woman's Relatives. And this woman wasn't named, so we don't know her name. Uh, she lived in China in the ninth century. And the, this is the story in brief. Once a monk on pilgrimage, met an old woman living alone in a hut. The monk asked, do you have any relatives? And she said, yes. The monk asked, where are they? She answered, the mountains, rivers, and the whole earth, the plants and trees, all are my relatives. 
So what can we learn from this old woman, you know, who apparently was living alone, but really she wasn't living alone, you know, uh, given all of the world around her that she felt connected to. And in Florence Kaplow wrote the reflection on this story. And she noted that in all the stories of old Chinese Buddhist hermits, this is the only one I know where the hermit is a woman. A woman in China under Confucian law was subject from birth to death to the absolute will of male family members, father, husband, brother, son. This was also true in India in the time of the Buddha. The monk may have thought she wouldn't survive on her own, thus the question about whether she had relatives nearby. But when the old woman turns the monk's question on its head, we know immediately that she is a Zen adept, a teacher. He needn't worry, she has relatives. She isn't unsupported. And none of us really is, however we may feel if we think about all the support that um, is available to us, both from the people that we know and the earth, the air, the water, uh, the elements. So this sense of being connected to all of life is one one of the keys to experiencing longevity without misery, in my opinion. Uh, it's true that as we age, we, we may lose family members and friends to death. We may relocate to a place and leave some of our close friends and family behind. Yet if we are aware of all the beings that support us wherever we are, we're less likely to feel that isolation. And Florence uh, Kaplow, in her commentary, talked about meeting this sense of being cut off as a more pernicious sense of separation that comes from ideas of here and there, I and not I, where the old women's, where the old woman's relatives out there beyond her skin or somewhere closer by. So I, 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 this is um, just a personal reflection about this. I, I um, was quarantined after testing positive for COVID in September. And because I live in a building with many other people, I was, um, I moved up the street. Uh, San Francisco Zen Center has a building with some apartments in it. And um, I was quarantining in one of those apartments. And uh, I felt, um, you know, after a few days when I wasn't feeling as sick as I was initially, uh, just to, I, I felt just so isolated and uh, and it went help. It was helpful to go outside and 
uh, just to take a walk in the neighborhood and to hug a tree in the park across the street, notice what was growing in the gardens, hear the bird calls, feel the wind on my face, and I realized I wasn't alone. So um, I think that old woman in ninth century China um, has an important teaching for us as does Florence's reflection. Um, so in uh, 2014, I attended a hidden lamp workshop. So Florence, Kaplow, and Sumun, um, after the book was published, traveled around and did many workshops uh, so that people could get to know these stories and draw from them. And um, in one of those workshops I attended, which was led by Florence, uh, there was a time to write about a woman who had inspired us. And I wrote a piece about Maylie Scott. So um, when I moved to the Bay Area in 1990, I became involved with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And uh, Maylie was a pillar of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. Um, and at one point, she was uh, going to the women's jail in San Francisco once a week to offer meditation instruction. And I asked if I could go with her. I wanted to, I, to um, volunteer uh, as she was doing. And um, I, for a year I went with her and I learned so much from her. So um, the woman I wrote about in, in this workshop with Florence was mainly, and I'll just share what I wrote. Um, Mei Li was unfazed by the whispering and giggling of the women in the cell during the time she had designated for silent meditation. I looked around at the women in, this, in their orange sweatshirts with irritation. Why was it so hard for them to sit still and be quiet, I asked myself. Mei Li calmly and kindly reminded them to notice their breath as it entered their nostrils and as it left. Eventually, the room did become quiet. She showed me by her example that calmness and kindness can transform people. Later, when she led a check-in, she listened with attention to the women's stories, visits from their children, hearing about the illness of a family member they were unable to see, hearing they would or would not be released from jail. She modeled non-judgmental, open-minded, and open-hearted connection. I could see that she liked these women. On the ride home every week, crossing the Bay Bridge in her old reliable car, we talk about our class, and again, I could appreciate her fearlessness and openness. It really helped me stretch.
So, um, Lawrence's uh, comment in, in the workshop was that life can hand you a hard deck of cards and you can still love. And um, I, I think that um, was one of, I, I don't, I don't know that Maylee's deck of cards was so difficult, I think, in her life. She was also a social worker and um, well-educated and had a family, uh, but she could, um, be present with whoever she encountered. That was my sense of Meili, just fully present and open and available. And um, a, a really inspiring teacher. So I recently visited Arcadas and Center Meili um, after she was Dharma transmitted here at Berkeley Zen Center, moved to Arcata and was the guiding teacher at Arcata Zen Center until she died. And uh, her spirit really lives on there. Many of the Sangha, well, there's several Sangha members who visit a prison nearby um, and are engaged in, in, in uh, other ways in the community in Arcata. And um, another one of Florence Caplow's teachers, who was also a teacher at San Francisco Zen Center initially, and then she moved with her husband to uh, a Russian River Sendo, and that was Darlene Cohen. I don't know if any of you would have met Darlene. Uh, she lived in the city for a long time. When I first moved into city center uh, in 1999, she was living there and uh, right across the street um, with her husband, Tony Patchell, who worked in the Tenderloin with uh, people who were homeless or unhoused. Um, and Darlene, uh, had um, a great uh, sense of humor, um, very warm and friendly. And uh, she also, she um, had a rheumatoid arthritis, which she had gotten in her early 20s. And she really uh, did a lot of work on what she called suffering and delight, how to work with physical pain and um, to notice whenever she entered a room, something beautiful, something in the space that she could focus on when she was in pain. And uh, she taught many people how to, how to work with physical pain. I wanted to 
read something from Darwin's story. Um, it, it, and particularly the reflection um, on this story was written by Leslie James, who's um, a, a teacher uh, at San Francisco Zen Center. She uh, mostly has been teaching at, living and teaching at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center. And Leslie was a very close friend of Darlene's. Um, so this is the story in Hidden Lab. It's about two weeks before Darlene Cohn passed away, she was lying on a small sofa in her living room, and a few students were there. In true form, Darlene announced matter-of-factly, I don't believe in karma or any of that shit. One of her students asked, if you don't believe in any of that, what do you believe in here on the threshold of life and death? Without a moment's hesitation and with much laughter and delight, Darlene said, I believe in skillful means, which means I'm willing to lie about anything. <laughs> <laughs> so she was, you know, in her own way, a very irreverent Zen teacher. And uh, she was always surprising people. I think it was surprising because her teaching was um, kind of in your face, just really, um, how would be the word, fresh and uh, unex you know, unexpected sometimes, what she would say. Um, but, uh, so I'll just read a little bit of um, the commentary by Leslie James, who uh, is another wonderful, wonderful teacher. Uh, I don't know if any of you have, have had a chance to meet her. Uh, she is now spending less time at Tassajara because she has uh, grandchildren that she loves to spend time with. But um, she was one of the people who inspired me when I first went to Tassajara. Uh, I met Darlene in the mid-70s when I first came to San Francisco Zen Center, Leslie says. She was a really beautiful woman, vibrant and alive and feisty. <coughs> then in her early 30s, when her son was only three years old, she developed rheumatoid arthritis. Her hands and legs were deformed and crippled, though she was still beautiful and lively. Eventually, years later, she had cancer, and the medicine for the cancer would counteract the medicine for the arthritis. She had to keep choosing which one to take. Through it all, she would say, I'm going to live my life completely. I think she was surprised over time to find herself becoming a teacher. She had a lot of trust in her wisdom, but actually found herself being, but to actually find herself being beneficial to people in a practice way surprised her. And as I watched her over the years, this came to be the most important thing to her, teaching people and helping people. 
She really studied how to make the Dhamma available to people because she knew it had helped her so much. She did it in her own way, though, with her own skillful means. So uh, I'm fortunate to have met Darlene and have been um, inspired by her frankness and her zest for life and her seemed unstoppable energy, even though she did actually need to rest quite a bit. Uh, when she was uh, giving a talk or teaching a class, she was so vibrant and um, had so much joy in life. So, um, I'm going to end with a, a story about the Mahapajavati, who is our first woman ancestor, whom we chant the women ancestors, it's Mahapajavati, and then so many of the uh, Indian women who were part of her Sangha. And there's a story about Mahapajavati in the Hidden Lamp as well. Um, It's called Mahapajapati Opens the Door. And it's about the story of her going to the Buddha three times to ask for the ordination of women. Maybe some of you are familiar with this story. Um, and it's it's such a touching story. I'm going to sh to share it um, as it was written in in the hidden lamp. Mahapajapati was the aunt and foster mother of the Buddha and a queen of the Shakyas. Many women turned to her for counsel when their husbands and son left home to join the Buddha's order. She was the first to ask the Buddha if women could also ordain. The Buddha replied, don't set your heart on this. She asked two more times and received the same answer. She departed in tears. Later, Mahabhajavati and 500 other women, 500 is just a term for many women, cut off their hair, put on saffron-colored clothes, robes, and walked barefoot for hundreds, for hundreds of miles to where the Buddha was teaching. Weeping, they stood outside the gates. Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant, saw them there and asked Mahapajati, why are you crying? Because the Buddha does not permit women to ordain. Ananda went to the Buddha and said, your aunt is standing outside with swollen feet, covered with dust, crying because you do not permit women to ordain. It would be good, Lord, if women had permission to ordain. The Buddha replied, enough, Ananda, don't set your heart on this. Ananda asked two more times to no avail. Then he asked, are women able, Lord, to realize the full fruits of the way, even arhat chip. 
Yes, Ananda, they are, the Buddha said. Since women are able to realize perfection, and since Mahapajamati was so kind to you, caring for you and suckling you at her own breast, surely it would be good if women were allowed to ordain. The Buddha relented, and the Sangha of women was born. So, um, great thanks to Mahapajavati <laughs> and to all the women who uh, practiced with her and were able to ordain. And uh, that question is still a live question in some of the countries of Asia where women are not allowed to ordain. So I feel, you know, again, uh, fortunate, greatly fortunate to be not only in, in a, a time when, a time and place where we as women can take our places and become teachers, whether we're ordained or not ordained. Um, There, uh, Mahapajapati paved, paved the way for many younger women. And I'm going to um, share a poem from this collection. It's called The First Free Women, and uh, it's poems of the early Buddhist nuns. And the one about Mahapajapati, I, I, I think is quite beautiful. Um, Mahapajapati, protector of children. I know you all. I have been your mother, your son, your father, your daughter. You see me now in my final role, kindly grandmother. It's a fine part to go out on. You might have heard how it all began when my sister died and I took her newborn son to raise as my own. People still ask, did you know then what he would become? What can I say? What mother doesn't see a Buddha in her child? He was such a quiet boy. The first time he reached for me, the first time I held him while he slept, how could I not know? To care for all children without exception, as though each will someday be the one to show us all the way home. This is the path. So, as we age, no matter what age we are, I, I think it's important to mentor young, younger generations. And for me, you know, be able to move aside or move back to enable younger generations to take up our leadership roles, to give them space to do that in their own ways while being available if they have questions or need us. And um, I think that's 
I'm not a parent, but I think that's probably the essence of parenting as well. You know, to mentor the next generation and give them help when needed, but no one to step out of the way. And <clears throat> do you think of longevity as a blessing? And I guess I, you know, I feel fortunate to have lived this long. I do think of it as a blessing. And uh, also think of words that Florence Kaplow shared, that sometimes life can give you a hard deck and you can still love. So um, that's where I'd like to end my talk and open the, the um, possibility of having some dialogue and uh, comments, questions, uh, whatever you'd like to share. And if you would, when, when you ask a question, uh, start with your name. I don't know everybody's names. Who's here, here today? Can I ready? Still, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I can see you more clearly. And I, is it possible for people, um, so people who are um, participating online by Zoom can also, you can also raise your hand. So I see, but I can't see your name, but a person green rock suit yes it's leslie hi hi, hi leslie. um yes uh people who are online can uh raise their digital hand and if that's something you'll see i i'm not quite sure but i if if you don't call on them i can let you know that they have their hand up great thank you leslie so are there any questions comments in, in the center you can just raise your uh, real hand. Yes, Mary. I'm Mary. Um, the story about Mahapajapati, I was, I always get stopped at the point where the Buddha says, don't set your heart on this. And then he says it again to Ananda. And then the word that um, is used in the hidden lamp is that he relents. So how do we work with that? With the with the, with the the Buddha who lived obviously in a cultural kind of, the, the imperfect Buddha. Excuse me, excuse me. Could I make a request that the person who's asking the question for a moment, just lower their uh, mask Excellent. so that okay. we can hear. Because I just would love to hear what you just asked, and I can't. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll say it again. Thank you. I I was saying that I I always get stopped at the point in the story about Mahabajapati where the Buddha says, "Don't set your heart on it," and turns her away, and he does it then repeatedly with Ananda, and in the story. The story is told that finally he relents. I mean, that's the word, right? 
So my question is, how do we work with the imperfect Buddha, the Buddha who is in a cultural, who is bound in cultural ways, but who also saw that women could be on the path? I mean, that I don't know, I'm just, maybe I'm just naming the feeling that arose. <laughs> yes, could you online hear the question? You can, okay. So I think the Buddha had his fixed views about women, which were part of the culture in which he was raised. And uh, I think many of us have fixed views about other people you know, that we may not even be aware of. And um, may not be open to possibilities that we might miss in other people, you know. So I, I think, um, I really appreciate that Ananda didn't stop, you know, asking that Buddha, and that he could see the qualities that women had to be leaders, and uh, that. Um, you know, and even when the Buddha relented, um, there were still eight special rules for women. They, at uh, that time, were not fully equal. Um, but I think to have some um, understanding of the conditioning the Buddha was part of, you know, men and women were not equal in that time. and. In some places, still are not treated equally, um, and I think that he was willing. The fact that he was willing to admit that he was, you know, seeing things in a narrow way enables me to feel appreciation for the Buddha that he finally did. And sometimes it takes, I know sometimes I have a, a view of someone and I, I may be you know, really seeing that person in a very limited way. And so, someone else may help me at times to, to be more open to that person. Um, and I think all of us may have that kind of experience, you know, where we kind of have a fixed idea about somebody in our lives, and it can change, but sometimes we need a nudge or, a, you know, some, someone else who sees, sees the, the goodness of that person or the potential of that person. So I think it's, a, it's also a lesson that even someone as insightful and wise as the Buddha had limitations, and that eventually he could open his mind. You know, that we can open our minds when we find ourselves prejudiced against some person or group of people. Thank you for that question. Yes. Hi, I'm Lisa. Well, Lisa, hi, hi Lisa. I can recognize you now. <laughs> this 
directly spoke to what came to me as you spoke about Darlene Cohen, because I'm here because she taught at Green Gulch uh, an amazing uh, session for people who are practicing in pain. And I had been practicing Zen before, but was unable to sit cross-legged any longer and felt that I no longer qualified to enter the way <laughs> because it, it was so rigid. Especially, I associate this with Green Gulch, this, uh, the, the need to hold on to the forms had made it very difficult for people with physical disabilities. And Darlene walked that line. She showed an incredible practice. She said, there's no excuse for not practicing. Sitting, standing, walking or lying down. <laughs> Practice the way with joy. And I, I think as we enter into uh, a time where women's place in the culture is attempting to be squelched again, we're going to encounter this in lots of ways. I think your teaching on this today was very timely. Thank you. Minister. And it's definitely connected to seeing the Buddha in the same way, right? <laughs> I, I think we all need to hold this in a very big container. Thank you. You're welcome. Could everyone hear what Lisa said? Yes. Oh, great. This is it's wonderful that uh, those of you who are in the wider Zendo can participate so fully and hear you know, what we're uh, bringing up here in the Zendo. So we we call on Elizabeth first and then Karen. Yeah. It's on Elizabeth. Um, thank you, Tova. How, as you grow older as a teacher, as a how has your relationship, this might be too big of a question, but do you feel your relationship to teaching, how has it uh, changed or widened or any, any kind of comment on your relationship to being a teacher and a leader in the wisdom of growing old? Wow. <laughs> so, I won't set my heart on an answer. <laughs> well, for one thing, I've stopped I've stopped pretty much writing out all my talks. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to um, because I feel that uh, and I did read some things today, of course, um, but that I want to be in eye contact with people I'm talking to, talking with. Um, I I, I sometimes um, tell stories from my own uh, ex my own experience. You know, um, as a student, I didn't do that today, but I feel um, 
that I'm, I'm still learning. I hope I always will be learning and that I learn from each person I meet. So I learn something. I learn, um, you know, by living in community, I feel I learn something about my own um, likes and dislikes and how not to be um, limited by them. Uh, you know, people su constantly surprise me and um, yeah, to, to be aware when I feel some resistance to somebody, to look at what's going on for me and what what is that bringing up for me and how can I um, be curious about that person and find a way to connect with them. Um, I, I, I do really take, I try to take seriously the idea of um, making space for the next generation of leaders and um, even though at City Center, I still, um, I love to be Kokyo and in the morning, uh, morning for morning service, I have Kokyo one day a week. And I'm, I know that there are people who would love to be Kokyo. So I'm going to actually think about giving that, giving up being Kokyo for a while, or maybe for a long while. <laughs> And uh, you know, making space in whatever way I can for other people to uh, take on those roles, which you know, valuable and good learning. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, I, I hope I will always be open to learning something new and being aware of my own biases, so I can you know, question that. Thank you. Yeah. So I saw Karen and then Helen. Why don't you go yeah. first? I'm Hannah. 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 Sorry. Um, yeah, this sort of relates to your question, um, but <clears throat> I think for me, I really the the main area of struggle to keep faith in the practices um really examining the more recent um history of harm to women in you know the lineage that i started practicing in in this lineage um and at my former um place of practice i Thought of this question and people were quite receptive to it, but it, I didn't feel satisfied. I don't with the answer that I think I, I was getting a lot, which was that um, you know these male teachers um, are not free from the causality of karma just because they're awake. Um, and I, 
I don't know if I'll, I guess I just wanted to ask in a room full of women, um, yeah, how, how you came to understand mm -hmm. these events that have occurred, you know, since the famous Japanese teachers came, you know, to America to teach, I guess, um, American or white Americans and how that kind of played out. So you're talking about sexual abuse. Yeah, it isn't only the Japanese teachers, it's <laughs> men. Well, I meant it started, or at least in my lineage, it started with that. It may be different here. Yeah, and I don't think it started with the, the Suzuki Roshi in this lineage, but there have been certainly Richard Baker and there have been other um, teachers. I'm not so sure. Yeah, there have been. So I think it's uh, a very painful um, area for um, not not only um, Zen sanghas, but this is more widespread. And I think there's some um, more of a um, an understanding that this needs to be talked about when it occurs and that um, there's no um, no move for some I mean I think there's some how do I put it that there are consequences for a teacher who um, mistreats or you know abuses or makes overtures toward uh, a student, and it's usually male teachers and women students, but not exclusively. And you know to really address those issues in a sangha when they come up, and I think there's much more. Uh, less tolerance for that kind of um, transgression now than there used. I don't know that there ever was tolerance, but it does. It was harder to talk about, and I think now women are more uh, likely to bring it up when that occurs, and that it's not ignored. And at least I know. I know that's true at San Francisco Zen Center. Um, this has happened a couple of times at least. I, I don't really, I, I, my 20 some years of residence, I can think of a couple of instances where uh, male teachers um, crossed a line that was not acceptable and they were uh, asked to step down, not even not wear their robes and um, get some help and you know therapy and it wasn't ignored i think that's something that's changing there's no tolerance for that for um, overstepping um, 
those boundaries in, in and I think it's also part of the Me Too movement. You know, it's it's wider in our society now, wide more widely uh, addressed. But I'm wondering, did you want to hear from other people who were in the room? Because there may be other people who'd like to say something about this. Not Karen, and then. I know I've um, felt unwelcome advances here, and I've been here a very long time, so we're going back a ways, not recently. But um, I remember a priest in robes who was consistently inappropriate. And I just think it has to be talked about and talked about that people shouldn't swallow that. And, um, you know, I'm thinking of you, but also anyone else that that happens to, that it shouldn't be some secret or cause of shame or, um, I don't know, that's what I would say to the group. It's here right now. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Karen. Yeah. Uh, this heart. Uh, I come initially from a tradition in Southern California, this in center of Los Angeles, and we did have uh, before I was there, the the Roshi had sexual relations with. A senior student and the daughter of another senior student. Um, and initially, and this is, I think, a pattern that has existed in other places as well, it was very challenging at first for the senior students to come forward and to really get it out in the open and address. And finally, it, it erupted. Um, and the, the <laughs> piece of good news around it is many times when you hear these stories, the, the person who's perpetrated has never openly atoned or acknowledged, sort of been done behind doors a little bit, if at all. And to his credit, I think, Maizumi Roshi atoned publicly over and over again and sat through people confronting him in many, many meetings, went to AA. So there was that at least possibility for healing, although great, great damage was done uh, at the time. So I think part of what exactly what Karen was saying feels true to me as well, that when the very first inkling of this kind of treatment emerges in any place, not just in the Sangha, in any place that it become spoken, it become public, it become, so the person is supported, who's been perpetrated against in any way, is deeply supported, but also that it opens the possibility to, for healing eventually. Thank you for asking this question. 
I think it's also important that that we don't have to make up a response every time it happens, that we actually have a structure in place mm. that is built in mm. and the way that we've built it in here over the last, I don't know, two and a half decades is by having an ethics committee mm. that stands actually on its own, supervised by the board, but not by the abbot. So that if there is some problem in leadership, there's a place to go that isn't directed by leadership, but is directed by, you know, another group. And that can handle and look into the situation and then determine and make a, make a determination about what should happen. So that you don't, I mean, in, in the early days, my understanding of what happened at San Francisco Zen Center is that they that part of the problem was figuring out how to address it, who to get together in the room, mm. who had authority, who could make something happen. And that actually is a structural problem that needs to be built in mm. to a sangha to make it safe. Mm. Yeah. yeah, thank you for that perspective. Yeah. Anyone else want to speak to this question? Anyone online? Yes. Hi, I'm Erna. Hi, Erna. Hi, I'm Toba. Um, speak louder. So um, I'm I'm new for the Zen Center, and thank you, Mary, for sharing the structural thing. Because what what I just want to share what occurs to me is what they're finding now about how the brain is structured and you know how our brains work is that people in in power tend to lose awareness of even like themselves and their behaviors so i think we can in a way like not be that to me says well we can maybe not yes people need to atone for and be responsible for their behavior but it gives that little bit of like oh, this is something that a group has to help this person with. So then that mean to me, so I'm really glad to hear that here at this center, that that structure is there because just that little, I mean, in my mind, just that little turning, oh, it's not like some person who's, we're all possibly susceptible to this if we are in a position of power while nobody's, giving us feedback because mm -hmm. our perceptions will change. Thank you, Verna. Any other comments, questions? So I'm just um, aware that we're a little bit over time with, uh, for this part of the program. Is that okay? It's fine. It's okay. Did you see another hand? Yeah. I, uh, yes. Uh, my name is Hema, and uh, um, I just wanted to say that uh, to me, besides the structural uh, need of having a group, 
there's always that what is left inside of you. Mm -hmm. That's really the the impact of the experience, and I've had to look at the shadow side of myself too. Like, what? Why is this? Why is this happening? Mm -hmm. And the the sitting has been very helpful, just mm -hmm. to really let there's some kind of acceptance that needs to happen. Not accept, acceptance in a passive way, but even if the Sangha is addressing it and everything, there's always something like, mm -hmm. like why, why did this happen? Mm -hmm. So that kind of turmoil that goes inside is mm -hmm. like something that for me, the practice has really been very helpful mm -hmm. just to deal with it. Thank you, Hella. Okay, so I appreciate you bringing up that question. Thank you. And all the responses. And um, yeah, thank you all for your attention.